2, we're going to read the verses 11 through 22. This concerns the ministry of the church, the gathering together of God's people, page 1160 in your pew Bibles, 1160. We're going to think on what it means that the Spirit of Christ gathers through His ministry, the Holy Catholic Church, fulfilling the work of the Son of God, and what that means that we're members of that church. And to that end, we're reading from Ephesians 2, beginning at verse 11. Hear the word of God. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who, were once, or you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints, and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. As for the reading of God's holy word, let's turn in our catechisms to Lord's Day 21. Now we're going to slow things down a bit. We're going to take each question and answer in turn. So we're just going to consider question answer 54. That's the one we'll recite together this afternoon. We're going to answer the question of Lord's Day 21, question and answer 54, page 222 in your forms and prayers books, 222 or 880 in your Trinity Psalter hymnal. Congregation, what do you believe concerning the Holy Catholic Church? I believe that the Son of God, through His Spirit and Word, out of the entire human race, from the beginning of the world to its end, gathers, protects, and preserves for Himself a community chosen for eternal life and united in true faith. And of this community, I am and always will be a living member, as the church does believe. Brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, our Lord, we continue our study now of the person and work of the Holy Spirit. We began that last week when we considered that the Spirit of God is God. We noted that He was truly divine, that the Word of God reveals to us 
his divinity, his personhood, and his being one with the Father and the Son. And then we noted as well uh, his ministry and how it is that he works in us by his power so that we might enjoy the blessings of Christ's saving work for us. Now we begin to see how the Spirit of God accomplishes that. We begin to work out uh, in the Catechism's treatment in the Apostle Creed's confessional statement what it is that the Spirit does for us in uh, bringing us the blessings of Christ and making them real in our lives. And we begin with this confession concerning the Holy Catholic Church. Now we remember, of course, that the word Catholic there uh, it's a lowercase c, and that means it's, it's not a proper noun. It, it, it's not a reference to the Roman Catholic Church. They have co-opted that word. The Roman Catholic uh, Church's name is actually a bit of a, a, a contradiction because the word Catholic really just means global, universal. It means worldwide. And how can a worldwide church be in Rome? How can it be the Roman worldwide church? That doesn't make much sense. But we don't use the capital letter C when it says when it comes to Catholic. We use the lowercase c. And that means that we believe that this church, set apart by God, holy, is found throughout the world and so is Catholic. We confess the holy Catholic church. And we confess that the Spirit of Christ fulfills the work of Christ, the work of the Father, by bringing about the formation of the church and the Catechism explains how that happens when it says that I believe, or teaches us to say, that I believe that the Son of God, through His Spirit and Word, out of the entire human race, from the beginning of the world to its end, gathers, protects, and preserves for Himself a community chosen for eternal life and united in true faith. The first thing we want to see is that the Spirit of God does this in service to the Son, in obedience to the Savior, and through the Word, through the Word of Christ. The Bible teaches us this in many ways and on many places, in many places in Scripture. In Ezekiel 37, we have one of those very famous moments, we mentioned it even last week, concerning the valley of the dry bones. And you remember then that strange scene that Ezekiel was given, where we read that he was brought out in the Spirit of the Lord and set in the middle of a valley. It was full of bones, Bone upon bone, these bleached bones, the, the bodies of warriors that had been in battle and had died and had not been buried, and there they were lying out in the sun, uh, dried and broken. And then he is told, uh, or the Lord asks him this question, Son of man, can these bones live? And Ezekiel wisely says, not what his brain tells him, not what common sense tells him, which is, no, they cannot, Lord. He says, no, Lord, only you know. And then what does the Lord say? He says, prophesy. He says, preach to these bones. Say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. We have that lovely song, that spiritual, that comes from this passage about bones being connected to bones. And that begins with, now hear the word of the Lord. That's a song about this passage. And this passage shows to us how the power of God's word transforms people from death to life. Indeed, that is what Paul speaks of in Romans 10. Romans 10, you have that very famous word from Paul where he says that those who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. 
And then he asks in verse 14, how will they call on him in whom they've not believed? How are they to believe in whom they've never heard? How are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they've not all obeyed the gospel, says Paul. But Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us. And then these words, so faith comes from hearing and hearing through the Word of Christ. Indeed, if you're following along in the Near to God series, if you're reading Reverend Zalstra's meditations this month, and you're going through the book of Thessalonians and 1 Thessalonians, and in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 5, we have this lovely word where he says, We know, brothers, loved by God, that He has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with conviction. Thus, in these passages, and there's many more that we could list, we learn from the Word of God that salvation, that the power of salvation comes into the lives of God's people, into your and my life, through the proclamation of the Word, not mechanically, not simply by the statement of the fact, but by the Spirit's blessing and empowering that Word to redeem us. And that makes uh, uh, that's a reasonable uh, understanding to, to discern from the Word of God given everything it says about us and about the saving work of Jesus Christ. For we know, do we not, that everyone who by nature is brought into this life is born dead in sin. Every time we have a baptism, we're reminded of that even though that baby beautifully and perfectly made is held before us, yet we confess that child is born utterly in sin. We are all born dead in our sins. And so we know, as Jesus reminds us when he speaks to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, that only a great and mighty work of God, a work equal in beauty and in strength to the work of creation, can possibly save us. Well, the means by which the Spirit of Christ comes into your life to affect that work, to bring power to you and to us, all to our children and grandchildren, to our friends and family, to any who are born into this darkened world in sin, the power of God is unleashed in their hearts by the preaching of the Word. That's the chosen means that God has appointed for this work, for the work of the Spirit's regenerating and renewing power. Indeed, not only regenerating, it is not only to get us to faith, but the Spirit and the preaching of the Word continues to renew us, continues to nourish us, continues to feed our hearts so that daily we grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so we must remember and we must confess with the Catechism and with the Scriptures that it is the Word of God that is so very powerful and vital for the life and the ministry of the church, for the redemption and salvation of God's people and that that Word must be living and active among us. Now to be sure, we don't want to only focus on the Word as it's preached. We want to see that the Word as it is proclaimed from the pulpit also flows, you might say, like a river from the pulpit into our homes, into our Bible studies, into our catechism classes and kingdom seeker and cadet classes. We want to emphasize that the preaching of the Word is the official means by which the Lord accomplishes this great and glorious work. 
But we also want to recognize that when we open the Bibles around our dinner tables, when we do our daily devotions, when we bring people to VBS, when we study that word together, then we are also experiencing that application of the Spirit's ministry in our lives. Thus our confession calls us to acknowledge this priority of God's Word in our spiritual walk with God that this word has been deposited within the church and is proclaimed in a way that is consistent with the foundation stones of the apostles and especially the chief cornerstone that is Jesus Christ. And when that word is so proclaimed, we confess and believe the most remarkable thing happens. The Spirit of Christ Himself indwells hearts and brings death to life. He brings darkness to light. He brings those who are lost into the care of the Savior to be found. It's a powerful, remarkable, eternal moment every time the Word of God goes forth. Even as the Spirit renews the ground in spring, so the Spirit renews us when we sit under His Word. Now this is a challenging truth, people of God, to maintain. Maybe not principally or theologically, but at least practically. On the one hand, this truth seems to us far too ordinary, too humble and too unequal to the task that we have claimed it can accomplish. How can listening to one man speak for a period of time on a worship service achieve so profound the transformation of a life that the dead become alive, that the dark can become uh, inspired? And indeed, we acknowledge that in itself, no preacher can accomplish that. But we claim that where the Word of God goes forth, so too the Spirit is unleashed upon the people in such a way that they are brought to living faith. How can that be on such an ordinary, such a humble ministry? On the other hand, certainly in the culture in which we live, we find, do we not, that this activity of sitting passively and listening to a preacher speak for a period of time, especially on some doctrines or theology that are hundreds and thousands of years old, reading books written so long ago, how can that be of any value for the church today? Surely that's too antiquated, too out of touch. Our world communicates in, in sound bites, in immediate and pressing images that are gripping and entertaining and powerful. That is not the way for the church to try and win souls. If we're going to minister into this culture, we need to speak in a way the culture can hear. And 35, 40 minutes of listening to someone go on about an ancient confessional statement hardly seems possible. How are we going to retain the imagination of any worshiper, if that's what we do. How can we hope to win the unbeliever if this is the method that we use? It seems so impossible. And let's not just throw the baby out with the bathwater here. We cannot simply throw up our hands and say, well, we're going to be like the monks of old. We're going to simply condemn the culture. We're going to withdraw from it. No, we have to wrestle with these questions. We have to deal with these things. We have to understand as a community, as a congregation, both as an organism and as an organization, the place and priority of the Word. What does it mean for us today in this environment to be in the world but not of it? 
especially as it comes to our worship services, especially as it comes to the preaching of the Word. We do need to communicate in a language that people can understand. I mean, we read our Bible in English, in an English version that is one of many. And we read it because this is what we understand. For many centuries, the church didn't. The church read only in the Latin tongue. And people couldn't understand it. So they built those lovely stained glass windows for people as the priest was going on. You could look up at the windows and see the story of the Gospel. We don't do that. We don't think that's the way to go. The living, of, the living and uh, uh, vital power of God is, is to be through the preaching of the Word. But that Word must be understandable. It must be relevant. It must be current. We need to seek to demonstrate the truth and significance and the promise of God's grace in a way that is winsome. How do we do that? How do we make sure that our sermons that are Sitting under the Word is a relevant experience. We need to wrestle with that. We need to ask ourselves those questions. We can't simply throw them away and pretend like they're not important. Yet even as we do that, we must never lose sight that it is our utter dependence on the Lord for salvation that must guide us. That it is ultimately only the Son of God who can gather, protect, and preserve for Himself a church, that it is in dependence upon Him and His ministry that we go forth into this world. Everything about the Gospel is true, uh, is, is count, counter to our human nature, to our expectations and desires. I mean, think about the story that we present to the world of a Savior who dies on a cross that a salvation is worked on behalf of a people chosen in eternity past. Long ago upon a hill in Golgotha, before we even knew it, all we do is announce it to the world that Jesus Christ has come and that His work has been satisfactory. It's been received by the Father and proclaimed by the servants of His Word. That doesn't seem to be a very compelling, exciting, or interesting message. How are we to understand or how are we to proclaim this to a world in a way that is winsome? Ultimately, what we are to do is to trust Jesus. We are to stand in awe of what He's done. We are to rejoice in His accomplishment on our behalf. And we are to be so committed to that that we go, that's what we need to hear. That's the first thing we want to hear when we come to church. We want to hear about what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. Show us Jesus, we say to the preacher. Do not entertain us. Do not speak to us of transient things. Do not speak to us of, of those things that are of the culture, but not of eternity. No, speak to us of the things of the Lord that we may again catch a vision, a glimpse of His grace and goodness and might be inspired by His Spirit. And that means that we ought to also in our coming to church and in our prayers for church be in earnest petition daily for the Spirit's presence and power not only in our worship services and in the moment of our, in our, of our worship, but in our daily lives and walk with the Lord, in our children's lives, in our church's ministry. We need to be in prayer for the ministries of the church, for the outreach of the church, for the activities of the church. We need to see that it is only God in Jesus Christ that can penetrate the hard hearts 
of not only our children, but of our neighbors and co-workers. And so we need to earnestly say, Lord, You alone can do it. Do it according to Your promises and power. And we need to do that confident. We need to pray confidently that this is the plan and promise of God. That He demands that His Word remain central and that we resist the temptation to make things entertaining, to get caught up in current affairs or compelling topics, but to rather focus on the central truth of what God has accomplished in Jesus Christ. And that we ought to see and to hear that the whole counsel of God is fruitfully and faithfully proclaimed to all the world. And that what the Apostle Paul says to also the Ephesian elders so powerfully in his departure from them when he says, I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. And think of what the Apostle also says in 1 Timothy 4 at verse 16. There in his words to a preacher, to a young preacher, to a new minister of the Word, the Apostle says, keep a close watch on yourself and the teaching, and on the teaching, persist in this, for by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. That needs to be our confidence, that we don't lose faith. Churches that chase the cultural relevance flame out and close their doors. But faithful churches, faithful to the Lord, faithful to His Word, trusting that this is the way that ministry ought to happen, those churches the gates of hell cannot prevail against. So let us keep in mind always the method of God's gathering His church through His Son and Spirit. And let's think about what it means to belong to that church. What is indeed the mem membership of the church that God gathers? Well, we're told the membership of this church in the Catechism when it speaks of a community chosen for eternal life and united in true faith. This community, we're told, is gathered out of the entire human race from the beginning of the world to its end. That's why we also read from Ephesians chapter 2 in verses 11 and following. There we have the story of the Jew and Gentile tension that existed in the New Testament church. These Gentiles were coming in. The Jews were struggling with where they fit within the economy of God. And the apostle reminds them, well, we're all saved in the same way. Oh yes, those Gentiles called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made by the flesh, uh, or in the flesh by hands. They were alienated and hostile and strangers and outside of Christ. But then the Lord brought them in. He pre preached peace to them and to the Jews. He brought them all together. And He brought into His fellowship all nations. Indeed, isn't that why in, in the... Uh, uh, words of the Great Commission, which by the way might be a poorly uh, titled word for this portion of Scripture, but nonetheless we know what it means. The Great Commission in Matthew 28, Jesus says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing or teaching them rather to observe all that I have commanded you and baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Indeed, when Jesus ascends, as Luke reminds us in Acts chapter 1, we read this Recently, when we thought about the ascension of Jesus Christ, then uh, Jesus says, in answer to the disciples' question, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He says, 
it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father is fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you'll be my witnesses in, and now it begins, Jerusalem, and then broader, Judea, broader yet, Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. Indeed, this is a global ministry. This is a global church that Christ is gathering. It is not a Dutch church. It is a global church, and it has been going on for a very long time, from the beginning of the world, we're told. Indeed, you can go back to the very opening chapters of Scripture, to Genesis 3, and the fall of man into sin, and you can see how there already, by the Word of God, the gathering of the church begins with the announcement of the saving work of Jesus Christ in in seed form, to be sure, but nonetheless, in Genesis 3.15, the announcement goes forth. The mother promise is unleashed, and we are the heirs of that promise. Indeed, we see how in Genesis 2, in the verses 1 and 2, there is that revelation about the day of the, the rest we will enter into, and in Revelation 22.14, at the very end of our Bibles, we see how that rest will be experienced eternally. We're bracketed by this glorious revelation of God's working salvation on behalf of His people. This has been going on for a lot longer than our church's history. Our church dates its history to the early 1990s, 1991 and 1992. Our building to 1997, but the church we belong to is a far more ancient church. Indeed, the church we belong to is far more expansive than we understand. Indeed, we ought to recognize our place within this global church that we confess a holy Catholic church. That's hard for us to do, you understand. There are voices in our culture that tell us, don't think about the Old Testament. Don't think about the church of the Old Testament. That's not really what we're talking about. You're a part of the New Testament church, which begins, well, nobody's quite sure where exactly it begins, but it begins after Jesus Christ's coming in the flesh, dying and rising from the dead. That's the passages of Scripture you should be paying attention to. That's the church you belong to, not to the Old Testament Jews. That was when God was saving Jews. Now God's saving Gentiles. Oh no, says Paul, God's been saving them both all along. Indeed, think about the promises of God to the patriarchs in the Old Testament. Think about the ways in which the Lord revealed His sovereign promises through people like Ruth and Rahab. The Lord has never had a narrow focus on one people, though He has used one people. More than that, He's used one man to bring blessing to all people. His focus has always been upon all nations. And we must forever as church keep that in mind, people of God. Because it is so easy for us to be tribalistic, both in terms of our own church federation, in terms of our own congregation, in terms of our own ethnicity, as though we are somehow the preferred ones, the specially chosen ones, the very valuable members of God's saving ministry. We tend to look at ourselves more highly than we ought. And that's not hard, or that's easy to do by our nature. That's easy to do by the culture in which we live. We are living in a time of tribalism, increasingly divided world, increasingly uh, distinct and separated groups and communities. I belong to this group. I belong to that group. Financially, politically, sexually, everything is divided up into tribes. Now, how does the church resist this temptation 
to quiet contentment in our own uniformity? How do we avoid this temptation to become tribalistic? Well, we remember and confess with our catechism that we have been gathered, protected, and preserved. We are not here, people of God, by birthright. We are not here by historic ownership of this building or place. Every one of us must confess that we are a member of this congregation and of the church universal by grace. We're all sinners. And none of us would be here were it not for the Lord's saving work. We have been graciously claimed by the Lord. Our place is here because of what He's done. It is His church, not our church. He's building it, not we. And so in our thinking and in our serving, we must forever keep in mind that we belong to the church of Jesus Christ. We are not a Dutch church. We are not even a Reformed church. We are a church of Jesus Christ. Oh, to be sure, we are Reformed and we are in the main Dutch. And there are blessings in that. There are historical blessings to be acknowledged in that. But we must ever look beyond those things and see that as a congregation, we need to challenge ourselves to be extroverted, not introverted, not to be content but to seek to proclaim far and wide to all the nations of the world that Jesus Christ is King. When we get introverted, bad things happen. The church forever needs to stand in awe of what God has done for us so that we can speak it to those we come into contact with each day. The church is the light that shines in the darkness. It is the hospital for the weary and wounded. It is the place in this broken world where blessing is bestowed. That's what we need to see. This is the gathering of Jesus Christ's company. Do we believe that? Do we desire that to be true? Or are we just content in our rituals and routines? No, we must see that we are only here Because Jesus Christ has claimed us and He can claim any. We once had in our congregation in a visit with the church visitors, a visit, uh, one of our elders said rather poorly to the church visitors that he wasn't sure the Lord could save Muslims. To which the church visitor rightly and powerfully said, but if God can save you, He can save anyone. We must always remember that. That must always be on our hearts. That must be always true for us. This church to which we belong, of which we are members, members characterized as the catechism says, a community chosen for eternal life and united in true faith. Chosen for eternal life. Ephesians 1, the verses uh, uh, 3 and following declare to us this glorious truth. Verse 4 in particular talks about how we have been chosen uh, before the very foundations of the world. Even as He chose us, says Paul, before the foundations of the world that we should be holy and blameless before Him. And think again of those words from Galatians that we have seen so often. Galatians 3, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by the hearing of faith? And are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? 
Or think of Peter's words where he writes to the dispersed church that is in so many places throughout the Roman Empire. He says to them that they are the elect exiles, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood. We are chosen. We are inspired by the Spirit. We are given life by God in Jesus Christ, and we are united by faith. That's always been the case. You go back to Abram in Genesis 15, verse 6, when he trusted the Lord and the Lord counted it to him as righteousness. You think about how in Jesus Christ's ministry, the call was repent and believe. And you remember how often in the Scripture we hear that call to faith. We are united not by our identity in ourselves, in our ethnicity, in our financial circumstances, but in Jesus Christ. And that is vital for us to keep in mind as church. It is challenging for us to remember as church because too often we do not take our identity in Christ, in faith in Christ, but we take our identity in a uniform way, in a way that we all feel comfortable with. For it is too easy for us as church to think that the characteristic of membership within the church is that people sound like us, look like us, act like us, think like us. That's the challenge the church has always faced. We prefer not unity, we prefer uniformity. Too often that's what the church defines itself by. This is our version of the faith. That is, we all sound, look, and act the same. And there are indeed similar things about us that we must acknowledge. We are all terrible sinners, even as we've all been wonderfully redeemed, and we are all called to grateful living. In this, we are all one. But what unites us, people of God, is not that we are uniform in our thinking and acting, but that we are united by our common commitment to Jesus Christ. Don't forget Augustine's wise words that in all things essential, unity. In all things non-essential, liberty. And in all things, charity. We can disagree on things non-essential. We can have discussions and debates about things of secondary importance. We may not have debates upon things of primary importance. Those things that we confess in things like the Creed, in things like the Apostles, Nicene, and Athanasian Creeds. We can't waver on those things at all, on the inspiration, infallibility, and inerrancy of the Word of God, on the triune God. There are things we will never compromise on. We can learn from each other. We can listen to fellow Christians. Instead of insisting that they meet our expectations, we can sit and learn from their witness and work what it is that the Lord is calling us to do. That doesn't mean that we accept everything anyone ever does. Of course not. But some things are really important and some things are less important. And we need to know which is which as a church. Because we are characterized not by our commitment to less important things. We are characterized by our commitment to most important things. To Jesus Christ and His saving work. The congregation, this congregation must be a body of believers longing for the blessed eternal fellowship with our triune God and with each other 
And all who rest in the saving work of Jesus Christ, regardless of their ethnicity, regardless of their culture, regardless of the way that they do things. And that must be the confidence that we confess and the hope that we have. And that's not easy to maintain, people of God. It's not. True community and true unity in the church takes work because it means getting along with people that don't look like us or aren't quite the way we want them to be who think differently than we do. And our ability to discern what's important and what's not takes work on our part. We have to learn to listen to what other Christians are saying, not what we think they're saying. And we need every time humility, counting others better than ourselves, listening with the sense that we too want to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. And to do this, we need to be daily in prayer. We need to be daily seeking the Lord's wisdom. He's promised that those who ask for wisdom will receive it. We must sincerely seek it. And those are things that we're not very good at. We're not very good at getting along with people that aren't like us and thinking these things carefully through and being humble and devoted in prayer. That's why we so much like uniformity. That's why we like things to look, sound, and be the same. It is so much easier for us. If someone looks, sounds, and acts like we do, they must be good because we're good. And if they don't, they can't be good because, well, we know what good is. We are the standard of all that is right and true. That becomes the church's mantra too easily. That becomes the the way that the church defends and protects itself, we will be the way we are and let everyone else do their own thing. But we have to work hard to serve Jesus Christ. We need to fight to remain faithful to our Lord. And when we work hard, the glory of our great King is exalted and the wonder of His saving work throughout the world is blessed then we show the world that there is a more excellent way, that there is a way in the midst of all the divisiveness and all of the brokenness of this world, that there is unity, reconciliation, and restoration amongst brothers and sisters who are naturally at odds with each other, but who find the unity of faith to be the characteristic that defines them. It is in this unity that we find our comfort. And comfort is good, people of God. Being comfortable usually isn't. Churches should not make us overly comfortable. They should challenge us and equip us for the journey and keep us from becoming complacent, challenging us to make our confession clear. Indeed, it is our confession at the end that we consider where it says of this community, I am and always will be a living member. The Word of God teaches us that this is what indeed we are called to. The Lord Himself in John chapter 10 speaks in this way, My sheep hear My voice and I know them and they follow Me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of My hand. My Father who has given them to Me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. And then Paul in 1 Corinthians 1 in the verses 4 through 9, speaks to the church in this way. He says, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in Him in all speech and in all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, 
so that you're not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And then again, if we come to Peter's letter in 1 Peter in the verses 3 through 5, here especially about the inheritance, the living member, the eternal blessing. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy. He's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfaded, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. We can add to that those words of Jesus concerning the vine and the branches, those words that we read, the mixed metaphor that we read in Ephesians 2, where Paul talks about being built up, and he uses both organic and architectural language. And we can think about all of those passages we've studied. Think about the book chapter, rather, uh, the 12th chapter of Romans, where all those one another passages are mentioned, or one another admonitions are given, love one another, serve one another. It is clear that the Word of God expects us to be gathered together with God's people and being gathered together to serve each other as together we journey into life. Indeed, isn't it true that we can borrow the words of, G- of our God rather from Genesis 2 when he says that it is not good that man should be alone? That is true in the context of marriage as it was revealed in Genesis 2. That continues to be broadly true in our world today, whether we're married or single. There is no such thing as an island when it comes to humanity. No man is an island. We must all live in fellowship with each other. We need family. We need friends. We need community. And we certainly need church. We need to belong and to commit to blessing one another in gratitude to God for salvation and for bringing us into this fellowship. We need to be living members of this congregation. And believe me, that is a challenging thing to do today. Today we live in a technological age where we can have contact and community without ever meeting anyone. We can be part of a community throughout this world that doesn't touch us, that doesn't interact with us meaningfully, but we see it on our screens, we experience it in our gaming. And indeed, culturally, culturally our society does not really encourage community anymore, not the way it used to. The individualism of our age, the transience, the moving from place to place, from job to job and experience to experience, uprooting ourselves and our families so that we never really belong to a place has wreaked havoc upon our health, our mental health, and our societal health. And the truth is, being a living member of any congregation, let alone this one, is messy. Being a member of a family is messy. There is brokenness, there is foolishness, there is bruising and bumping, there is pain when you interact with other people such that you sometimes want to leave them behind. But the Lord says, no, I have saved you unto community. I've saved you unto fellowship. Even as I, the three-in-one, am community, so to my people reflect me as the image bearers of me being also united as one. And indeed, we ought to think of ourselves not only congregationally that way, but as the church of Jesus Christ throughout the world. We are part of a global body under Jesus Christ. 
And we express our commitment to that body not by leaving it. You hear so many people say that. I'm, not re- I'm spiritual but not religious. I don't have a problem with Christianity. I have a problem with the church. And so they worship on their own. They do their own thing. They don't want to have anything to do with the church. Well, no, says the catechism, you must be a living member of the congregation, not dead wood, not someone being carried. You are to be a living member, alive in Jesus Christ. And you are placed within your family, within your community, within your congregation, because God in His wisdom wants you to serve there. He's given you gifts for that very purpose. He has blessed you with something that will bless everyone else. And He desires that you use those gifts. Some of them are public. Some of them are private. Some of them are given great attention by society. Some of them are hardly seen at all. They're done in the background. But God has given every one of us a blessing to be a blessing for others. So that we could in some way borrow from JFK and say, not what does, not, ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. Saying instead, ask not what your church can do for you, but what you can do for your church. Now to be sure, the church does bless. We don't want to take that saying too hard or push it too far. But we do want to ask ourselves in a society where everything is handed to us, where it's all about ease of life, where it's all about being served, getting everything you want, where you just click a few buttons on your phone and something shows up at your door the next day, we want to say in the church it's a different thing. Here you come to serve. Here you come to work. Here you come to belong, to drink deeply of grace, and to use the blessing in blessing others. It is impossible for those who are grafted into Christ, not to produce fruit. And we are to be grateful that Jesus Christ has brought us into this difficult, broken, troublesome, annoying, strained congregation with all of its problems. When we look at this congregation, we see the the scars, we see the brokenness, we see the pain. But you know what God sees? He sees the apple of His eye. And we need to learn to look at it this way too. We need to see things the way God sees them. And that includes then the church. And we need to celebrate the church and its ministry. We need to demand the ministry of the Word. We need to express it in the way that we live. We need to rejoice in it as God's people in this world. We need to rejoice to know that the Lord continues to gather, protect, and preserve His church By the power of His Word and Spirit and of that church, we are all living members. Let's thank Him for that in prayer. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank You.